Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Banter on the Parkway. I am your host, Brian, from BannersOnThePartway.com. I did say if Xavier lost either game last week, we wouldn't be back. And uh, I'm proving myself a liar, folks. So um, there you have it. I am a liar. You don't have to tweet at me and tell me. Uh, (laughs) It's happening again, isn't it? Anyway, we are uh, joined this week by your favorite uh, angry bald person, except for Bruce Willis and most other angry bald people. It's Brad. Brad, how you doing? Um, still bald and now angrier. I think if we're keeping in the uh, realm of college basketball, um, or the 13U soccer program I coached, which played immediately after Xavier on Saturday and played in much the same vein as Xavier on Saturday. So it was like just four hours of being really frustrated with people younger than me. Gotcha. Um, okay. How often do you, do you scream fewer curses at your, your 11 and 12 year olds than Xavier? I make it a habit of not swearing anywhere in my life, but Xavier would prompt me to do it more than people who are actually children. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's good. That's a good policy to have. I think, you know, um, I tend to try and, you know, I have more of my emotions tied up in people I don't know playing sports and people I do know playing sports. Just, you know, that seems like a better policy for me. Uh, anyway, we are also joined by uh, someone who who has his emotions tied up in all sorts of things. It's Joel. You're a very emotional person. I've, I've seen some of your paintings. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That was an experimental phase in college, and that was supposed to stay between you and me <clears throat> and those people we had model. Um, I really don't have anything else to add, but I just saw a pop-up or whatever they call them now on my internet for DoorDash, and I just wanted to remind you that your DoorDash driver does math. Oh, for sure. 100%. I mean, mine doesn't because I live so far away from civilization that I actually can't get anything DoorDash to my house. So <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty fun. Um but yeah, um, and uh, we are also joined uh, by a guy who's kind of like your space stepdad. It's Braden. Uh, <laughs> what's up? Uh, legendary, legendary callback to a great movie. Uh, I can't top that with any sort of response. Go watch Megamind if you haven't already, then come back to the rest of this episode. Go watch Megamind several times if you haven't already. Come on. It's been out for a decade. Anyway, uh, Xavier was in action this week uh, on Wednesday night. They went to Wintrust Arena. And much like last week when people were asking what the hardest place to win in the Big East was, and I said Wintrust Arena, don't go back and listen because I'm quoting it for you verbatim. You don't have to go back and listen. I'm telling the truth. Uh, Xavier, 72. DePaul, 73. Um I mean, Brad, is this another hashtag good loss? There is absolutely no way to spin this as a good loss. Uh, DePaul is a really bad team. Xavier has not lost to a team as bad as DePaul since a game in which Matt Stainbrook was the leading scorer. Uh, (laughs) Way back when they lost to 137 
Wake Forest. That was the 2nd of January. 2013, that wasn't a great year. Um, if you fast forward one year after that, you get another loss that's equally bad to the DePaul one. But since then, since joining the Big East, Xavier has not had a Ken Palm loss this bad. Um, I, I don't know, like, what happened. It, even that loss on Ken Palm was at least to USC. So it sounds like a good team. Um, Brandon Randolph featured in that game to give you some idea how far back we're going and Isaiah Fillmore. Xavier just didn't do anything very well against DePaul. You don't have to defend well to hold DePaul to a point per game. Um, you might say that holding DePaul to a point per game is not holding DePaul at all. Um, do you mean a point per possession? Because I feel like if you hold them to a point per game, you've actually done a really good job. That might yeah, be a record. A point per game would have been good. In the, in the way Xavier was scoring, a point per game almost would have been what we needed against DePaul. Uh, Xavier was 12 of 30 at the rim and 4 of 20 from behind the arc. So when you put those numbers together, you don't score very much. Um, Jack Nunji tried to hero his way to another win at DePaul like he did last year. Um, last year at DePaul is when the collapse started. Uh, this year at DePaul, we went one worse and somehow managed to lose. Um, it was a complete crap show. The team played horribly uh, in pretty much all facets except at the line where we were 14 of 15. So, yay. Uh, just a, a terrible game. There, There's no excuse for losing to DePaul. Ever. If you're an elite team, you shouldn't lose to DePaul. Which Xavier has now done twice in a row. Um, but, crucially, never in the Big East tournament. Would have played them in the 2020 Big East tournament, but the 2020 Big East tournament didn't happen. So, um, we'd have waxed them, though. <laughs> I mean, obviously, uh, that would have been a pasting of legendary proportions, probably the likes of which DePaul still wouldn't have come back from. So thanks a lot, COVID. Made Xavier lose this game too. Uh, anyway, um, I mean, briefly, I think one of the talking points, maybe the last play where Xavier had the ball uh, with like 1.2 seconds left down one. Um, was anyone here a fan of that call? I mean, Obviously, hindsight being 2020, uh, everybody can be like, wow, what a terrible call. I thought when it happened, though, um, I did not like the idea of trying to lob it cross court to Nunji. Um, but anyway, um, you guys I'm all show here. I'm jump in that I did get to see the last play of that game, and I actually didn't hate it. Um, a unlikely cross-court lob pass uh, led to B.J. Raymond racking a wide-open three against West Virginia way back in the day. I think the idea to clear it out and throw it up for uh, Nunji and an ISO wasn't bad. It was just going to take a lot of really good execution uh, from a guy who couldn't stand up on his own power for for most of the stretch run in Adam Kunkel. So I I don't think it was entirely ill-conceived. It just didn't come off, and that wasn't exactly stunning, especially the way the rest of the game had gone. But uh, you know, they gave him a—they gave themselves a chance for like a catch and one dribble, and a shot at the basket. So nothing you draw up in that situation is going to look super good. 
I thought that was not the worst of their many bad options. Okay. <laughs> I I prefer, I don't know, something going toward Durant. But again, you're in a bad situation already. Um because you're down, losing to the pool. Down one with a second left. Uh it's really it's a it's it's a no-win situation, even if you do technically win. Um, so that brings us to Saturday. It was Xavier 95, Georgetown 82. Braden, have you ever seen a dude shoot 31 times in a regulation basketball game? I mean, holy cow. <laughs> off the top of my head that I can remember. Uh, but hats off to Primo Spears. Uh, you think you'd just get bored taking that many shots? He didn't, uh, and he kept making a disturbing amount of them. Uh, I thought one thing uh, Coach Miller pointed out in the post game is that while he is a high volume guy because Georgetown's garbage and he's the bright spot on their team, you got to at least limit his looks. I mean, he's taken hesitation, dribble, step back, 17 footers. But for a guy like him, that's kind of the shots he's getting because it's not a very good team. You got to just deny him looks if you can. And Xavier was more than happy to let him go for 37. Honestly, it looked happy when he was discussing it. (laughs) I said Xavier was more than happy. Coach Miller was definitely not happy. Uh, I liked that in his post-game presser when they asked about how great Zach Fremantle was, he looped it back around to talking about how bad the defense was. He's like, yeah, Zach was great, but also, man, we sucked. (laughs) Uh, So you love to see that, but Fremantle did have a great game. Um, I think the big difference between this and the DePaul game was just that X could get their offense going. Other than that, it was kind of rinse and repeat. Uh, a good guard, a shifty guard was getting a lot of clean looks and lit us up. The good thing for us was we got the shots to fall uh, at a pretty high rate. The ball distribution was back. We had 31 assists in the game. And uh, the other factor is that Georgetown's terrible. Uh, even Primo Spears shooting out of his mind, uh, they just were not able to really ever get into this. It got tight towards the end, but this I didn't think this one was really in doubt. Um, maybe I was the only one who thought that. Brad's negative. He probably thought we were going to choke and lose to Georgetown. Uh, and if you lose to Georgetown, I'd say fire everybody. Bench all the players. Yeah, like call it a rebuilding season. Collapse the program and I don't know. But we didn't lose, so we don't have to worry about all of that. I, even I didn't think we were going to lose because Georgetown is just so bad. Um, it was frustrating to watch Primo Spears do his best Allen Iverson impression. But Patrick Ewing just looks clueless. It calls to mind Chris Mullen swinging his legs like a little kid. Like he just kind of wanders around on the sideline. Then he calls timeouts and everybody else talks to the team while he stares pensively up into the stands. And then they run back out there. Like Spears had a nice game, but Kudus Wahab had a 164 O rating and got four shots. Like maybe you tell him, hey, this guy inside cannot be stopped. And neither could a Coca Coke or however we're saying that. 151 O rating, six of seven inside the arc. But that was it. <laughs> and I know how I'm saying that. <laughs> I think they say it a Coca Coke. It's obviously that's the coward's way of saying it. Um, as we oh, I guess I am a liar. I'm also a coward. Um, so, um, <laughs> so I, if we're being negative, which sometimes we are, and pe- people might hate this, but I found that somebody's going to hate no matter what we publish. When was the last time we convinced? Like beating Georgetown by 13 at home, not convincing. 
losing to DePaul, bad. Um, Marquette was within a possession in winning time. Creighton was within a possession in winning time. Uh, we beat Villanova fairly handily away, and then they set out to uh, demonstrate that that wasn't a very good win. We beat UConn by 10 on New Year's Eve, uh, but that was a game that was nip and tuck until Dan Hurley handed us a four-point possession by losing his mind. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I didn't feel comfortable during our five-point win against St. John's. We beat Seton Hall by three. Now we're all the way back to the middle of December where we beat Georgetown by 13, despite surrendering 89 points in 77 possessions. I mean, we clobbered Southern, hooray. We somehow took a, a blowout in the shootout into a three-point win. West Virginia was tied with us with five minutes to go. Like, I, I mean, I guess you can look at all these games and say, yeah, we played to win and we won almost all of them except DePaul. But we haven't, like, crushed anyone other than by games all year. Like, we, there has never been a time where against a good team, Xavier opened up a can and ran away with it. Am I, am I missing something? Tell me I'm wrong here. I think that Marquette game, you're not going to beat Marquette by 10 or 12, even at home. They are really, really good. So I think winning that game is reasonably convincing. I would be happy with that. I was happy with the UConn win at the time it happened. Um, and I still think UConn's a pretty good team. I mean, Marquette is eighth in the nation per Ken Palm, and UConn is still sixth. I think winning either of those games is enough of an accomplishment that you don't have to say we should have won by 15. At the same time, though, uh, you're right. I mean, we didn't. We should have beaten Creighton by more, I think. i I don't necessarily buy Creighton. I'm beating Villanova by eight. Yeah, I I think you can maybe go back to the St. John's game and say we had been riding a loss was coming somewhere in there. We'd been riding our luck a little bit, and I don't think that means this team's not very good or anything like that. I just you're eventually going to lose a game, and I think we had not been great against some bad teams in that stretch. Um, yeah, I think one of the other things to look at, you know, Sean Miller's teams typically don't really blow people out. His last year at Arizona, uh, when he had a pretty, pretty strong team, um, I think they only won two conference games by double digits, and that was Washington State and uh, Oregon State, if I'm reading this correctly. Uh, they also beat Arizona State by double digits. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know if maybe that's just an aspect of um, the way his teams play. This team, you would think, since they play so fast, uh, would blow someone out. But uh, like we've discussed, like he was uh, very eager to discuss on Saturday, uh, this team doesn't play very good defense, um, in his opinion. Uh I did like there was one person on Twitter who was like, well, why can't you just be happy we won? I'm like, the coach isn't happy, man. <laughs> like, uh, anyway, I'm not like mining for something to be mad about. Uh, his whole press conference was uh, really just him not being happy. So um, looking around the nation, uh, Brad, I mean, 
you found a new a new BFF after Fran McCaffrey has faded. Richard Patino, uh, your new guy. Um, but Richard, much like with most of his life, unfairly things went against him last night uh, in a turn of events that was the universe conspiring against poor Richard. Uh, can you walk us through how New Mexico was robbed against Nevada? I mean, thickly layered sarcasm aside, they really were. Um, I think all of us probably tune into college basketball games late at night when nothing else is on, because why would you not? So I was watching New Mexico and Nevada play a double OT game, and Morris Udezi came down with a rebound in what was a tie game, double overtime, was going to give New Mexico the ball with a chance to win, um, was immediately surrounded by a wolf pack of Nevada players. Um, and I, they looked like they were trying to give a foul for some reason. Um, he got whacked. So I've watched back on it today just to make sure I'd seen it. There were four times that Nevada should have been called for fouling Udazi, um, including one guy who appeared to be trying to crawl into his shirt. Uh, I don't know if it was like an advanced swaddling method or if the guy was having some sort of anxiety and thought Morris looked big and strong and could maybe help him with that, which I'm not I'm not here to judge if he was having some sort of um, emotional wellness issue. You do need to address that right away. Uh, Daisy finally got upset or probably just tired of getting hit, as I think even people who don't stand 6'8", 240 get, and reached out with his left arm and pushed one of the Nevada players away. Um, he went down as if he'd been poleaxed. Then nothing happened for three seconds, and then the rest blew their whistles because they decided either they decided to review it or Patino called a timeout. It's a little bit hard to tell in the replay which happens first. Um, and they assessed New Mexico a flagrant one because Udezi was trying. Uh, it looked like he was acting in self-defense, frankly, um, more than making a basketball play. I think he was like afraid he was being assaulted and like he, he was having some sort of weird dream in which he'd been playing basketball and now was being beaten by a large group of angry men. Um, it was bad. <laughs> it's just a terrible, terrible call. And of course, they called it with relish and then went and uh, explained it to the coaches. Patino had to be physically restrained, though, if I were one of his assistant coaches at that game, I'd have just been like, oops, he got away from me because uh, <laughs> one of those refs deserved. I mean, it was bad, just a terrible, terrible call. And rarely, I think we've said this, rarely do the refs actually change the outcome of a game. Um, in this game, they did change the outcome because Nevada got the ball and two shots, and one ninety-seven, ninety-four, on. I, it was awful. New Mexico should have been at the line. Instead, one of their players got called for a flagrant one uh, when acting in self-defense. Had he done that on the street, I think people would have applauded him for the bravery and courage he showed in fighting off three other men. Um, it was awful. And like you said, Patino lost his ever-loving mind, which is not the first time a Patino has lost his mind while a, Matt, while a Jamal Mashburn stands there and watches. Look at that. Time is a flat circle. Uh, my favorite part of all these is that the refs get to go watch themselves blow like eight calls, and then they walk away and be like, well, this guy needs a flagrant foul, obviously. Like, they get to watch that replay and be like, nope, nothing there, nothing there, nothing there. Um, 
it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Whatever refs are paid is too much, is uh, my default setting. Like, if they're getting paid at all, they're getting overpaid uh, because it is beyond obnoxious at this point, the way that games are refereed. Um, quick one for Braden. Does New Mexico border Nevada? <laughs> Ugh. No. Oh, he got it, folks. Look at him. Look at him. Geography stud. Ferdinand Magellan in the flesh. Anyway, um, the number one and number two teams uh, both went down this weekend. Uh, Houston and Kansas both lost. Kansas is actually now on a three-game losing streak. Uh, Purdue kind of struggled um, to win their game this weekend. No one's really necessarily separating themselves this season as the team to beat. Is that good or bad for college basketball, Joel? Because um, some people are saying it's bad. Um, I think no team is really separating itself. Is to January what this is the weakest bubble in history is to March? Like you, <laughs> like it kind of comes out every year, right? In Obviously, if you lose a game to a team in the American Conference, you probably suck. So it's it's fair to take take a look at Houston, but they are about a point of adjusted efficiency margin. So they're the number one team in the Ken Palm. They're about a point above the number two team, and about twelve points above the number twenty team. Last year, uh, Gonzaga was about two and a half points ahead of Houston as the number two team and about 12 points separated the top 20. Then I'm going to jump back to 2019 because I'm going to skip the COVID years. Virginia was about a point and a half above Gonzaga and number two and about 14 points separated the top 20. 2018 Villanova was a, a runaway uh, four points ahead of Duke, or I'm sorry, ahead of Virginia as number two and about 14 points separated the top 20. 2017, Gonzaga was about two and a quarter points ahead of Nova and about nine or 10 points separated the top 20. So um, obviously these are all moving targets and those are end of year numbers, whereas we're looking at January numbers right now. But I think this is one of those things where you can take a snapshot of where the season sits and basically make it tell you whatever you want to. Um, nobody looks elite now. But maybe, you know, Kansas or Purdue rips off a, a three or four game win streak against a, a tough stretch in their conference. Certainly Kansas has got a chance coming up to uh, to really make some hay, as it were. Uh, Tennessee and Alabama are both positioned right there. UCLA might not be able to do a whole lot for their adjusted efficiency margin, but they're probably not going to lose too many more games. Um, so right now it's pretty tight, and I think that's good. I think the shuffle at the top is is interesting. If these guys are playing to interest me, congratulations, they've accomplished that. But, uh, you know, when the when the dust settles, there will only be one champion, and it probably won't be the team with the best adjusted efficiency margin. I think that one of the fun things about the NCAA tournament is that it just kind of kind of sifts through and you, you end up with somebody at the end and it doesn't really matter if they were the most elite, they just needed to have the best six games in March. So um, I think in retrospect, it's easy to pick out a dominant team in some seasons. And uh, at this point in those seasons, it might not have been quite so clear that they were going to run away the way they did. My concern is that 
they're not being a truly elite team means that Tennessee did not destroy Kentucky. And now Kentucky's kind of sneaking back into the tournament picture when I was super hopeful that they were not going to make it. Yeah, I think that's one of those things, you know, like eventually Kentucky's going to be back and it's going to be like, should have killed me when you had the chance. And then they go to like the Elite Eight or something, um, <laughs> which I dread. Uh, anyway, Xavier has a, a pretty tough week coming up um, at Connecticut and at Creighton. So what is a reasonable expectation for this week, uh, given that at DePaul and home to Georgetown was a one in one week last week? I, I think it I'm probably depends on. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say it depends on which of us you ask that question because I would say a reasonable expectation for this week is zero and two. I mean, I think it's reasonable to say Xavier could lose both these games. It's two good teams on the road. Um, is it reasonable to say Xavier could win both these games? Yes. So yes, I think both of these teams are less bad matchups for Xavier because neither of them has a guard that uh, you're going to throw the ball, throw the ball to and say, Hey, go shoot it 31 times and, you know, get me 37 points. Um, Trey Alexander kind of scares me, but he only scored his only, <laughs> he was held to a mere 16 on eight shots from the floor at Cintas. Um, if he decides he wants to go ham, I don't think Xavier's got an answer for that. Um, I don't think Nemhard is going to go out and score a whole ton of points against Xavier. If you look at UConn, none of their guards really scare me, but neither did Trey Campbell, and we remember how that turned out. Um, I think Connecticut's biggest issue is how to get the ball to their dominant bigs in dominant position, and I think Xavier's biggest strength on defense, if they have one at all, is defending the interior. So, um, you know, I think the the thing that scares me the most about this week is Trey Alexander and also the way that Xavier has played in the last week. But um, this isn't one where I'm sitting here banking on 0-2 the way Brad is. I think these are these are games you don't have to squint very hard to to see Xavier um, strategying their way into a couple of wins. I'm not banking on 0-2. I'm saying I think that's the most likely uh, result. I, d I agree with you. I think that if one of them is more winnable than the other, it's probably the UConn game um, because they have struggled a little bit recently. And when they can't get their bigs going, they look pretty run-of-the-mill. On the other hand, they just beat Butler by 30. So there's that. Um, I think that hope, we might hope that Andre Jackson tries to take the game over um, because when he shoots a lot, they tend to do poorly. But I think that if Nunji and Freeman will stay out of foul trouble, the UConn game looks better to me than the Creighton game does. Though the fact that we lost to DePaul and then struggled to put away Georgetown and they obliterated a weaker opponent by 30 is mildly concerning. They haven't played at DePaul yet, though, so really... If you haven't won at the Win Trust, I don't know as you've really proven anything in the Big East. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say if you haven't won at the Win Trust, don't talk, don't talk to me. Uh, 
You know, going back to <clears throat> when Big East play started, sorting from December 15th to present time, it's interesting because Creighton was picked to win the Big East. And since Big East play started on Bart Torvik, they've been the best team in the Big East. Uh, Connecticut is down at 24th during that span. Um, Xavier, by virtue of having the 126th best defense in the country in that span, is 28th. Uh, but what's interesting is that after Butler had kind of surprised people by being good in non-conference, they're actually 23 spots worse than Georgetown since Big East play started. Uh, we are 207th in the country since December 15th, which is uh, horrendous. And they're 287th on offense. So maybe just letting Chuck Harris shoot whenever he feels like it is not the best offensive strategy, but I'm sure Thad is going to work that one out. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think I could see any outcome this week. 0-2, 1-1, 2-0, both games get canceled. Uh, you know, Coach Miller becomes a football coach. Anything could happen. Uh, <laughs> guys, the world is a mystery, um, and it's more mysterious to me because I'm kind of dumb. So, uh <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, there, there, there are reasons to think Xavier might go 0-2 this week. There are reasons to think Xavier might go 2-0 this week. There are reasons to think they might win either of these games this week. Um, but I would say 1-1 one one is probably my expectation for this week. So, um, I mean, looking at this, and I think um, at Muskie Musings did a little bit of lifting on this uh, as far as does this team's defense preclude a long run in March? Um, and is there historical precedent for a team to drastically improve on defense at this point in the season? So, Brad, I mean, he kind of broke down a little bit on whether or not there's hope that this Xavier team will will play good enough defense to make a long run. Can you uh, walk us through that and just kind of, I don't know, is there hope that this Xavier team can produce a defense that's capable of a final four run? Um, I think hope springs eternal. So if you want to, you can hope that the defense that is currently 103rd in the nation gets better uh, since the turn of the year, Xavier's 152nd in the nation in defensive efficiency. So that's not trending in the right direction. Uh, and they just got torched by Georgetown. So that's also not a good thing. In the last 10 games, uh, Xavier's defensive efficiency is 106. That obviously goes back to more than the turn of the year. If you want to look at teams like Xavier by going to uh, the similar profiles on Bart Torvik, the Outcomes are not great. Uh, Xavier is an outlier good offense and an outlier terrible defense. And generally, that gets you knocked out in the first or second round. The 10 teams closest to Xavier, uh, there's still only one of them that made it to the Sweet 16. Uh, that's Indiana in 2012. Other than that, they're all first or second round eliminations or teams that only made the play-in games. Um so if there is a fate worse than death, it's playing in Dayton or just being in Dayton, having ever been to Dayton. Um, 
and Xavier kind of profiles as a team that would do that. I don't think that's going to be the case here, but uh, you have a three seed in there who lost in the first round in Iowa State in 2015. Um, and it, that Indiana team was a four seed, six seed that lost in the first round, five seed that lost in the first round. It's not good, Bry. Uh, Xavier's defense has to improve, but that can happen. Um, the last team that had a the worst team this decade to make the Final Four uh, defense-wise was that UCLA team from a couple years back, and they were 54th. They came into the tournament 86th in defense. Um, when VCU went on their long run to the Final Four, they were 145th in defensive efficiency at the start of the year, at the start of the tournament. Um, Butler's 2011 team was 77th. Michigan in 2013 was 84th. Uh, Duke in 2015 was 52nd, which is only notable because they finished 12th after the tournament, so they really locked down. Um, so there is precedent, and again, Mus Musky Musings deserves the uh, credit for looking that up, but. Few and far between are the teams that play that badly on defense at any point in the year and end up making a deep run. It's much more likely that a team plays defense really badly is going to get knocked out early. Hooray. That's, that's good news. Oh. <laughs> right. what? So what you're saying is all we need is Trey Burke on our team and we'll make it to the final, right? What I'm saying is that I would feel a lot better if our defense was showing any signs of improvement rather than getting catastrophically worse as the season went on. Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the coach seems to think that there's only one way to go from here. So that's a positive, <laughs> you know. Uh, anyway. Uh, we did have a lot of questions last week, some of which are still applicable. Um, so um, we are going to get to some of the questions from Twitter last week that we weren't able to get to uh, on last week's podcast. One of them is from uh, at a underscore final four. Um, who breaks Georgetown's losing streak, which I don't know who began the phrase Georgetown roulette to describe Georgetown's games, but I love it. Um, because it really is. Someone is going to lose to Georgetown, and uh, whoever that is, that is going to be a black part mark on their program, all those players, those players' families, their city, their state, um, you know, their fan base, possibly the world as a whole, depending on who it is. So who breaks Georgetown's losing streak? And then he also wanted to know, uh, about Jerome Hunter shooting some threes. Obviously, Jerome Hunter shot a lot of threes last year, um, has not shot very many this year, but Fremantle began the season not shooting threes and has started making them. Um, he thinks that might be good for Hunter. So, Braden, uh, Georgetown's losing streak, does it end this year? And also, should Jerome Hunter shoot more threes? As far as Georgetown's losing streak, it does not end this year. Uh, I think I think you're going to go into next season. I'm assuming we're talking about the Big East losing streak because they'll probably beat some NAIA school by like four in their season opener next year. So I'm not counting that one. Uh, it's going to be DePaul. It, it just has to be in my mind. I'd absolutely die laughing if it was like UConn or something like that. But it's not coming this year. 
uh, I'm not entirely positive it's coming next year, to be honest with you. If Patrick Ewing finishes his contract, they might. I'm looking for <laughs> oh, I, I'm looking for Owen a hundred. Set that record. Hang that banner. Uh, to get to the Jerome Hunter question, I don't see any reason for him to start shooting threes. Uh, as as we've seen from last year, he is not a good shooter in a Xavier uniform. He put up decent-ish numbers at Indiana, but in my mind right now, there's no reason to mess with what he's doing. He's getting on the glass really well. He's got a completely different role than he did last year, and he's performing it a lot better. Uh, last year, he shot 41% inside the arc. Uh, he's shooting 61% this year. So whatever they've done that has switched up his game, it's working. Uh, he's flashed a little bit of a mid-range. He's got a little uh, got a little post fade, and then he's just a dog underneath. I mean, he gets a lot of second-chance points. He gets a lot of tip-ins just by staying in the play. I don't think moving him further away from the rim to start hoisting more threes, where he is shooting a stellar 33% this year, I don't think that's helping anybody, really. Because uh, you also got him getting to the line. He doesn't get there a whole lot, but he's shooting really well from the line this year. Uh, I was there for the one three that he's made this year. Sintas uh, went absolutely berserk. And if that's the only th- three he hits all year and he keeps contributing like this, I, I think that's a great season for him. So I don't think we really need to mess with a good thing while it's going. And you don't think that Georgetown... At home to DePaul tonight. We're recording this on Tuesday. It's 7 o'clock. You don't think the streak ends there. Ken Palm gives Georgetown a 42% chance. That's their best chance to win a game this year. And if you add their percent chance of winning in any other two games this year together, it still doesn't hit 42%. No, it's just not happening this year. I think think tonight Primo Spears could honestly go for 60 and they'd still lose. Because Patrick Ewing is just going to be standing over there on the sidelines. It's like, guys, basketball better than them. And it's just not going to work. Even Tony Stubblefield's a better coach. And I don't think very highly of him. So Perhaps not a better person, though. I'm going to say circle Sunday, February 19th at Butler. Sneaky chance for Georgetown to relax. To, uh, to, uh, yeah, I don't think they're going to do I don't think they're going to beat DePaul tonight. You want to go on record with a prediction for people to uh, mock? Whether or not the Georgetown wins tonight, Brad, since they won't be listening to this until after that game's done. I got a weird feeling that it ends tonight. I do. I think that Georgetown roulette and karma in general catch up to Tony Stubblefield, and I would thoroughly enjoy that. He's a bad person. He deserves to lose to Georgetown. So what you're saying is that if Georgetown wins tonight, God wins tonight. Is that what I'm hearing? I'm going to stop a little short of there, I think. Okay. Before I do some more research on Georgetown players, um, I will give them credit, though. They are not one of the programs this year that has had someone murder someone. So that's good. I'd like to see if this Georgetown played the Georgetown from Kentucky. I'd like to see how that game would go. Mid-South Conference NAIA school. I think that'd be a barn burner. I really hope I'm not detecting some disrespect for the Mid-South Conference in there. No, I'm saying, I'm saying that's a legit power conference in Kentucky. And I, I think Primo Spears could give them all they could handle, but they might still be able to pull that one out. Yeah, I, I think at a neutral site, that only opens like Hoyas minus four. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go to that. I'm going to ride or die with the Tigers. First, <laughs> once again, 
We've derailed. Not, I will not. I will not cheer for Georgetown College. Sorry. I was gonna say, <laughs> absolutely not. First of I, all, I, they are fifteenth uh, in the nation this year, though. Uh, Twelve and three in the Mid South. Eighteen and three overall. Um, and our alma mater is also playing this year. Let's move on before we get into that. First of all, the Mid South Conference has teams from outside Kentucky. So you just revealed your ignorance here on the college basketball podcast. You don't even know where conferences are. <laughs> Secondly, I'm going to go with Brad here. I'm not going to cheer for Georgetown, Kentucky. Um, um, I, I so Wilberforce is in the Mid-South Conference now. Really? Uh, a, yeah. thing I, a thing I did not know, and you might describe them. I wouldn't call the Georgetown that actually exists in the Mid-South Conference the Georgetown in the Mid-South, because I'd call Wilberforce that because they're 0-14 in conference play and 0-18 overall. Why did they only play four non-con games? Um, Probably because they're super bad at basketball and just wanted to get this over with as soon as possible. I'm not sure. Oh, my gosh. And they played some really bad teams and lost to them. They lost to Clinton Junior College by 11. Uh, and Taylor University by 16. Oof. Anyway, this has been your Mid-South Roundup for this week. <laughs> now back to the stuff you probably tuned in for. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll be honest. I think if it ends this year, it ends at Butler. Just because Butler is cratering, and I almost feel like um, without without the the steak, the juicy steak of having – uh, a chance to ruin Xavier's season on Wednesday night at the, the Big East tournament. I think Butler will have given up by then. So I think Georgetown roulette continues for another month about. And I think it ends at Hinklefield House on February 19th. Um, but next week, we will be back with another episode of Georgetown roulette. Um, we've got one from Never Take L's. Uh, so this was going to be a article. It did not end up being an article. But can you do a breakdown of the roster on how many years eligibility they have left? Uh, Joel. So obviously some of the guys, it's fairly clear. Um, for instance, Desmond Claude is a freshman this year. He has four years left. But um, some of them make it a little murky with the COVID year and things like that. So can you just break down who has what eligibility remaining? I'd be delighted to. Um, first up are the guys who are done after this year. <clears throat> Excuse me, Sule Boom, grad transfer on his third school, uh, used up his COVID year. Uh, this is it for him. Kunk uh, transferred in from Belmont, was going to have to sit out a year. Then they gave him that year back. Uh, this is his fifth season of playing ball. He's done. Jack Nunji will turn 24 this season. Um, he took a medical red shirt at Iowa and is now using his COVID year to continue playing. Uh, he's not going to be back, nor could he be if he decided to be. Um, guys with one year left are Big Rome. Uh, kind of the spanner in the works there is that before his freshman season, he took a medical red shirt because he had surgery on his leg. I don't think that negates his COVID year of eligibility, but much like anything else with the NCAA and eligibility, there's no clear answer that's easy to find. They're probably making it up as they go along and will surprise you with it when you least expect it. 
but Hunter should have a year of eligibility left. Uh, Zach Fremantle and Kiki Tandy both do, thanks to the pandemic. That cost us all a year. Um, on my deathbed, I'm going to ask a God for my year back. And I'm assuming he'll just give it back to me because that's the way things work. Colby Jones has two years left. Um, he probably won't use both of them, and he might not use either of them, depending on where he sits in draft boards. I don't follow that stuff too much, but I know he has been popping up in the first round. And if he gets the chance to be the first round draft pick, I think he will probably go for it. A couple guys who it probably only matters to the school they transfer out to are D. Miles and Cesar Edwards. They both have a couple years left after this. And then uh, Cam Craft and Des Cloud came in after the COVID pandemic. They are on the normal eligibility track. So after their freshman season, they will have sophomore, junior, and senior years to make the most of their college experience. So there you have it. We're gotcha. definitely losing three guys. Uh, my guess is Fremantle will probably take a look. Colby will take a look. And Hunter might just not want to come back to college because he's been out of high school for a while. So at least three of our top six and possibly all of them will be uh, need to be replaced in the offseason. Right. Which I think when people... um. We had a couple of questions last week as to whether Cam Kraft would stick around. I would be pretty surprised if he left, given what this roster um, figures to turn over in the offseason, especially with two of the guys you know leaving are Sule Boom and Adam Kunkel. Uh, we got another one from Never Take Els. Um, can you do a segment to either discuss or just share the nuclear winter source every time your pod's brought up? It's immediately, oh, the nuclear winter, guys, you must be getting sick of it. Clear the air. This goes back to the NIT game last year and then the subsequent, well, the first NIT game last year, Xavier played several of them and won the tournament, um, for those of you who didn't know that. So it was quite the occasion, arguably a bigger deal than winning the NCAA tournament, but um, because the NIT is on ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, NCAA tournament on CBS, not even ranked. In sports. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. Anyway, um, so Brad, I mean, I think you were the one who tweeted that out. Um, can you uh, obviously? I, I don't think what it never take else is saying is reveal your source because that's not uh, well. Not what we're going to do, but can you talk through kind of what um, what was going on at the time and um, really kind of what was meant by that by the individual who who said it? Yeah, so I, for one, definitely not going to reveal my source. Uh, it was a conversation that we were having with somebody on scene at uh, the funeral that was the Cleveland State game. Um, we're just not going to say who that was. It was somebody with an extremely recognizable name. I will say that what he was talking about was not, oh, if we fire Travis Steele, it's automatically a three year rebuild, which he said would be like nuclear winter. He was saying if Xavier did something hasty and did not get the right guy, it could be like nuclear winter, which is what I tweeted. And of course, people jumped all over that because that's how Twitter is. 
um, he was speaking in specific. Um, I think I'm okay in saying this. He was not impressed with Dennis Gates as a coach and did not want X to go that route um, because he didn't think that he would be able to build this particular program back up quickly. Um, Gates actually has done a really good job at Missouri this year, but he mentioned him and a couple other mid-major coaches in there. Um, I agree with that, that that would have been taking a step back. Um, he did not say firing Travis Steele would be like nuclear winter. We did not say that. None of us thought that. No one here thinks that Sean Miller is not a significant upgrade. This is the dumbest thing that we deal with on Twitter, and it mostly comes down to the fact that the American educational system is not very good, and reading comprehension is apparently not a thing people teach anymore. Yeah, there you have yeah. it. point of view is that if you have a problem with that tweet, it's because you're a moron. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, that's, um, <laughs> that's not necessarily clearing the air, bud, but okay. Let me, let me see if I can reel that back in just a hair. Um, it was super on brand for me, though. I think <laughs> myself there. Yeah, brand here's the thing that we've learned about the responses to that tweet is people hate your brand. So uh, <laughs> they read yeah, it, though. If we'd asked this guy, hey, what if we get rid of Travis Steele and bring in Sean Miller, he wouldn't have been like nuclear winner, three-year rebuild. Um when we were having this conversation, almost nobody thought Miller was a realistic target. Obviously, everybody would be happy to replace their current coach with a top five coach, except for the other four teams with top five coaches. Um, the other thing is, when we tweeted that out and Travis Steele's butt was still in the seat, and then later when Travis Steele, um, his seat was buttless, nobody at that point in time had, had any issue with the tweet. It's only when um, Xavier Nation realized, holy cow, we're bringing back the best coach in program history, that then, oh, let's jump on that, because in hindsight, this is way better than nuclear winner. Well, yeah, no freaking kidding. And, you know, we're not, we, we worked as that guy's stenographer a little bit. He said something, we thought the people would find it interesting. We sent it back out there as information to have. Not everything we tweet lines up with everything we believe. Just like if, uh, you know, Sean Miller says uh, the defense is going to improve. We may report that. That doesn't mean we think it's actually going to happen. So, um, you know, never take L's. It's like, thinks we must be getting sick of it. Uh, from my perspective, this started as like a Facebook thread between three people. And now we have like dozens of followers on Twitter. Maybe a hundred. I don't know. I haven't checked. So um, if somebody comes into our mentions like nuclear winter, I mute them and move on. The my target demographic remains the very limited number of people we started this to have them read. And uh, anybody outside of that is just real easy for me to not care that much about. Sorry for those of you who thought you were gonna get onto my Christmas card list. Um and sorry for those of you, I promised to reel back in what Brad said. I recognize we're progressing in the opposite direction. But, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, the, one, of, one of the problems with being public-facing is that the American education system doesn't <laughs> comprehend it. No, stuff happened. So we, we, we tweeted it. Then we landed Coach Miller. We're delighted by that. We... <laughs> We wish Travis Steele well, but nobody is sitting in Banners Central being like, man, if only we could get out from under this Miller guy. 
I'm happy the team's 16 and four. It doesn't make me sad that that we're doing it under Miller instead of Steele. Who cares? We're Xavier fans. Xavier's winning. Hooray. So our our two takes on that basically are you're an idiot and we don't care what you think anyway. <laughs> good. That was, uh, that was really good, guys. Here's the thing. Um, I neither was in on the conversation because I wasn't invited to the game and I didn't send the tweet. So if you get the uh, impression that I'm the one live tweeting the game or Braden, um, who also was not invited, please don't bring it up uh, because I didn't tweet it. And uh, so, yeah, um, I don't deserve that kind of grief uh, for what <laughs> these two jokes tweeted and then doubled down on um, pretty aggressively here tonight. So uh, anyway... <laughs> I started out with my heart in the right place. <laughs> that was a good air clearing. That was like clearing the air by dropping a dead animal into it. Like, what was that? Oh, we got to rehearse. Um, yeah, but from my perspective, I think um, I don't. I don't know that I'm gonna get you know uh, all that upset about it because. Uh, I'm really happy that Xavier's doing super well. So I don't know um, if people think like it, I don't know. It, it's like one to hang over my head that Xavier's doing well, but uh, I'm pumped about it. So there you go. Um, we got one from Bradley Stevenson. Uh, re Kiki, is it hard to get going when you're only in for two minutes? And if he's really that bad, why play him at all? Or is everyone else on the bench worse? Just trying to figure out our short rotation. Bradley, as uh, someone who specialized in playing two-minute stretches during my basketball career, let me tell you, it, it is a little tough to get going. Uh, I never did let that stop me from trying to to shoot every time I touched the ball anyway. So, so um, but this is kind of uh, interesting because Tandy plays almost every game, but... He usually makes one short cameo in the first half and then is never heard from again. I mean, does that make does that make sense to you guys? Because I every time it happens, I am a little confused by putting somebody in for a couple minutes. I mean, his last three games have been two minutes, three minutes, two minutes, all in the first half, all in one stretch. And he never went back in the game. I, I just, yes, it confuses me as well, Bradley. Can someone speak to what, um, yeah, I mean, is there a reason here that Bradley and I are missing? I think Bradley hit the nail on the head with, is everybody else on the bench worse? And if he's really that bad, why play him at all? Um I think if Sean Miller thought he gave the team a better chance to win, he'd be out there more. And I think if he thought he gave the team a worse chance to win than maybe like Cam Craft, he'd be out there less. Um, since Christmas, he's played two minutes, four minutes, two minutes, DNP, two minutes, three minutes, two minutes. Um, all of those right around the final media timeout in the first half. And that's just like his regularly scheduled appearance for the Kiki cameo. During that time, he's got seven points on two of four shooting, one of two from deep and two of two from the line. 
He's got a board. He's got an assist. He's got a turnover. He's got a steal. Somehow he's picked up four personal fouls. boy. Yeah. Like, it's just, I don't know. I obviously, I'm not at practice every day. I don't see what Coach Miller's seeing. And it's one of those things that we're probably not going to be able to know from the outside unless Kiki or Coach Miller decides to speak out on it publicly. The one thing we do know, he, he's earned the gold jersey a couple times um, this season, which is a thing that, like, those of us who aren't at practice can at least track who's got the gold jersey, and that tells us something about what's going on at practice. And Kiki has earned that a couple times. So it seems like Coach Miller thinks at least something of his work ethic uh, off the court. But, um, yeah, I to me it's confusing. Um, Maybe Coach Mill. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so the confusing journey of Kiki Tandy continues because um, his entire career has been a bit, a bit confusing to me um, at this point. Uh, and this year has been no different. I mean, he um, started the season as a starter and, um, you know, put up 14 against Montana. But uh, again, I don't really know, but it doesn't make a ton of sense to me, if I'm honest. So, um, <laughs> a, a underscore final four, um, was DePaul, the DePaul loss a good loss? Obviously not meaning resume-wise, um, but meaning it gave us a reset, um, and is it a quality opponent? So, Joel, I mean, obviously from like a net perspective, DePaul is Xavier's worst loss this season by far. Um, they're probably going to end the season as a quad three loss away. Um, but do you think this has the potential to be a wake up call for Xavier? Um, I think it did have that potential and it did not pay out on that potential. Um, Xavier went out and did the same thing that they've been doing for three months against Georgetown. Uh, they got up 11 early in the first half and promptly surrendered an 11-0 run in less than two minutes to the worst offense in the league. Um, they played 33, 32 or 33 second half possessions against Georgetown and hemorrhaged 43 points. Um, Primo Spears got basically whatever he wanted except for a win. If this... Uh, you know, if this functioned as a wake-up call, it was more of uh, hitting the snooze than actually getting out of bed and getting anything accomplished. Kind of the the sneaky part of this is DePaul is not that far off of being a Q2. They got to move up 17 spots in the net uh, by Selection Sunday to be a Q2. That's not unthinkable. Maybe they'll do that, but... Um, I was hopeful maybe that would jar something loose so we could take a silver lining from the black cloud that is losing to DePaul, but it didn't. And we didn't. Yeah. So, um, last question here is from Ethan Detter was booms hot streak, just a fluke or can he get back to his shooting abilities that Xavier desperately needs? So Braden, um, you dove uh, a little bit into Sue boom. We're getting a little short on time here, but, um, is there reason to think he'll nose back up after a couple of rough weeks? 
Absolutely. On his career, he's a 36% three-point shooter. He's had a few bad performances. It happens. Um, I don't think it was a fluke to start the season. Uh, Shooters have hot streaks. They have cold streaks. He's just in a little bit of a slump right now. Uh, I think we could see him get hot or, you know, get back up to his career numbers very soon. But I don't think it's any reason to hit the panic switch. All right. And uh, this week for Xavier Player of the Week, we are once again going to play the state song of New Jersey. Um, because, Brad, I mean, you have to get going here. But uh, who's your Xavier Player of the Week? Uh, mine is Zach Fremantle who uh, was decent at DePaul, was solid, uh, but against Georgetown looked very much like a guy who was determined not to lose that game, um, despite all the effort it would have taken for us to lose that game. He went 12-19 from the floor, 4-6 from the line, racked up 11 rebounds and 30 points, um, and threw in seven assists to go with that. He just had an excellent, excellent game against Georgetown. Uh, If Primo Spears... If the announcers had not been gushing over him so much, they might have taken a moment to notice how good a game uh, Fremantle was having. I would argue probably a a better game than Spears. He was certainly far more efficient. Um, He had a really good game. And in a day where Jack Nungy uh, didn't have it, uh, Zach really stepped up. It's hard to pick a player of a week from a week when you lose to DePaul, though. But I still went with Zach Fremantle. Okay. Um, I'm just going to spoil it for everyone. Everybody picked Zach Fremantle. Uh, as I said, we are running pretty short on time, but, um, the guy almost had a triple double against Georgetown. Uh, no one necessarily bathed themselves in glory against DePaul, but uh, he was as good as anyone on Xavier, uh, that night. Um, so that, um, I mean, is there anything else we need to add about the week Zachary Mantle had? No. Wish he'd shave, but um, other than <laughs> that, <laughs> uh, he's doing great. And uh, it's great to see him back to um, being a, a player that I, I, I make the argument he's been Xavier's best big this year, um, kind of surpassing Dungey. Um, and he's back to being the player I think we were hoping he would be coming into last season. So that is it for us this week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, Xavier, like we said, has a tough week coming up. Trips to Connecticut and Creighton. So we'll be back next week to look back at those and look ahead at whether or not Ed Cooley is a good coach.